Welcome to Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode four of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was 5 foot 2 inches tall, and weighed approximately 125 pounds. In the four and a half years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, The stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful, and the facts scarce. In Season 3 of Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby, we are starting from the beginning, and by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance. We are going to focus on the details and try to discern fact from fiction. In this season, as always, You'll hear from private investigator Michael Fleming. You will also hear from a special guest, private investigator Jeff Beans with Sound Mind Investigations has been working on Jessica's case from almost the beginning. He has devoted thousands of man hours and uncountable resources to this case. Jeff's hard work has given us a head start. At the end of the last episode, Michael mentioned some information that was obtained from the geofencing that was done at Gilbert Shaw's camper. It is important to note that we do not have the geofencing results in our possession, but both Michael and Jeff have seen it. The timeframes given in all discussions about the geofencing are approximate and based on notes taken by Michael at a meeting he and Jeff had with law enforcement about Jessica's case on July 6, 2020. Michael completed the breakdown of the NELOS data that you heard about in Episode 3 in June of 2020, and the purpose of the meeting with the investigators was for Michael to present his findings. During the meeting, law enforcement pulled up the geofencing results. Each person caught in the geofence had their own color-coded dot on the map. Michael noticed a black dot at Gilbert's camper that hadn't been discussed, so he asked about it. That device belonged to a man named Rodney, who lived in Belmont, Mississippi at that time. Rodney has a significant criminal history and spent many years in prison. Like Gilbert Shaw, he was employed by W.S. Newell, and had been working on the new North Fork Bridge construction project. Rodney's brother also worked at the site, but we've been told they usually arrived separately. 
According to Rodney's location history from the geofence, he left his home in Belmont between 4 and 4.30 a.m. As stated earlier, he arrived at Gilbert's at approximately 6 a.m. Shortly after his arrival, his device disappeared from the geofencing. Since Rodney was working for W.S. Newell on the bridge project at that time, it would be a reasonable assumption to think that he had driven there for work that day, and maybe that's why his appearance in the geofence hadn't drawn any great interest in the years since Jessica's disappearance. But this explanation of his presence there doesn't stand up to closer scrutiny. Rodney didn't drive the direct route to his destination at or near Gilbert's camper. Instead, after leaving his home in Belmont, he took a short detour to a residential location in Red Bay, Alabama, where he stopped for approximately 10 minutes. In preparation for his meeting with law enforcement, Michael had pulled background reports on all the people with Jessica at the time of her disappearance and also on the people she'd been communicating with in those last hours. He took the time to plot all of their last known addresses on a map. As they took a closer look at the map of the location where Rodney stopped in Red Bay, Michael recognized it. The device location data revealed that Rodney stopped for approximately 10 minutes beside the home of Travis Jackson's girlfriend. The same girlfriend that in the early morning hours of January 3rd, Travis told Jessica had put him on the couch. Let's take a closer look at Jessica and Travis's messages. Some of these you've heard, some are new, but in light of this new revelation, these messages are important. At 3.11 a.m., Travis sent Jessica a message that read, In Bay, Man, I got put on the couch tonight. I need a ride outs here, for real, for real. This message seems to confirm that Travis was indeed at his girlfriend's home in Red Bay. At 3.13 a.m., Jessica sent Travis the messages we've previously discussed, asking him if he could get some boy and telling him that if he could, she could borrow a car. At 3.23 a.m., Travis told Jessica he could get some boy and that he knew where some morphine tablets were waiting. We already know that this set off a flurry of messages from Jessica as she began to look for a ride to go pick Travis up in Red Bay. At 3.47 a.m., Jessica sent Travis a message that read, Can you help with gas for the way back and maybe throw a girl some boy? At 4.02 a.m., Jessica made a messenger call to Travis that lasted for 37 seconds, and she called him again via messenger at 4.05 a.m. for 43 seconds. Maybe it's in these calls that Jessica gave Travis a time frame in which she planned to pick him up, because the timing is never discussed in their messages. As was mentioned in a prior episode, Daybreak and daylight were significant to Jessica for some reason, and her mentions of this began prior to her calls with Travis. At 4.11 a.m., Travis sent Jessica messages answering her earlier question. He told her he would provide gas, and if he couldn't provide boy, he'd give strips and other 
or even just cash. He promised her it would be a win-win situation for whoever came. At 4.13 a.m., Travis sent Jessica a message that we believe could be significant, especially when you consider that the time this message was sent is around the time that Rodney would have been arriving next door to the home where Travis's girlfriend lived. He told her, Going on a big run. Half pee, but don't tell no one. Travis is referring to making a dope run in which he indicated he was getting a half pound of something, likely meth. At 4.15 a.m. and 4.19 a.m., he tells Jessica, you about to win a spot on the starting team and pull this off and watch if you get a promotion. Jessica immediately responded to the second message and she asked Travis if he still had that house available in Florence. As you consider the meaning of her question to him, I will say this. We have found no evidence that Travis was a homeowner, but we have heard other information that might shine some light on this. We will come back to discuss Florence again later in this episode. At 4.23 a.m., Travis told Jessica, Yeah, if you do this, I'll duck you off with me till you get on your feet. Me and old girl probably not going to make it. As we read these messages, some of the statements Travis made to Jessica made us wonder if by this point in the morning, the plan had changed and Travis didn't need Jessica to pick him up anymore. But Jessica continued to look for a ride to Red Bay to pick him up. If anything, at this point, her determination to secure a ride seemed even more intense. Other than Jessica telling Travis that she needed a clean point, there's no other communication between the two until 5.56 a.m. Jessica told Travis that she was excited to see his face. She immediately followed that up with another message that is quite important. She said, Be there soon, boo. Don't let her talk you into staying after I done worked my magic. At 5.59 a.m., Travis asked Jessica, You and Ben's? This is a reference to a borrowed Mercedes car that Jessica had been driving the last time she saw Travis, which was just before Christmas in 2017. Again, the content and timing of this message could be quite significant, as this is about the time that Rodney arrived at Gilbert Shaw's camper. Jessica did not respond to this question until 7.45 a.m. She told him no, she was in a different car and noted she'd found a car for sale for $2,000. This response also gives some support to our belief that Jessica was still alive and well at this time, because at 5.32 a.m., Jessica had asked Nate Dunstan if he had a car for sale, and he told her he did, for $2,000. There were no further messages between Jessica and Travis for the next 10-plus hours, despite it being clear that the two of them had plans, and he should have been sitting at his girlfriend's home waiting for Jessica to pull up and pick him up at any moment. The messages you'd expect to see from someone waiting on a ride were oddly never sent. Things like, you almost here? You still coming? Where are you? 
The same sort of messages, in fact, that Jessica sent to Nate after he agreed to pick her up. Instead, the next message from Travis was sent at 5.22 p.m., and it said, I wanted to go back with you today. According to Jeff Means, Robbie Barton with the State Bureau of Investigation told him that he interviewed Travis Jackson's girlfriend, and she told Barton that she is the one who sent that message to Jessica. She explained that Travis had told her he went to Mississippi in the early morning hours of January 3rd, but she hadn't believed him. She suspected he'd been with Jessica, and the girlfriend claimed she sent that message to Jessica from Travis's phone to try to find out if he actually had been with her. While we won't comment on our beliefs if the girlfriend actually sent that message or not, her claim that she did still reveals a very significant point. Travis Jackson was not at his girlfriend's home in Red Bay waiting for Jessica to come pick him up as he'd indicated in his extensive communications with her. Once Rodney's device arrived at Gilbert's camper, it disappeared from the geofence for approximately two hours. Shortly after 8 a.m., Rodney's device suddenly appeared again in the same location, Gilbert's camper, and then began to travel back to Red Bay. I have to point out the timing of this event, too. Rodney's device began its movement to leave the area within minutes of Jessica's last sent message and her last Nelos location. The max edge of Jessica's last Nelos location was 1.36 miles from Gilbert's camper and approximately a 10-minute drive, which again would fit with the time frame of Rodney's reappearance on the geofencing shortly after 8 a.m. Another point to make clear here is that while Rodney worked on the site with Gilbert and his arrival at approximately 6 a.m. would seem to coincide with the workers arriving for the day, Gilbert mentioned, and we have confirmed, that they had to be on the site by 6.15 a.m. and start working no later than 6.30 a.m. According to the information we've obtained, the workers who drove to the site did not park at the campers. They parked closer to the job site. Obviously, Rodney's shift would not have been over when he left around 8 a.m., According to the information provided to us, like Eric, Rodney had a habit of showing up late and sometimes not at all. After he left Gilbert's camper, Rodney made a stop in Red Bay at the Sunshine Mills dog food plant in an area near a loading dock on the backside of the plant. After the brief stop, his device continued back to Rodney's home in Belmont, Mississippi, At least one person told us that Travis worked at Sunshine Mills at some point, but employment records we obtained did not agree with that information. I want to revisit Jessica asking Travis if he still had the house in Florence. Remember, this question from her was in response to him telling her that she was about to be promoted and she'd have a place on the starting team. While Travis's background reports 
show at least 14 prior addresses for him. None of them are in Florence. At the end of 2020, Michael and I interviewed a man, and the purpose of the interview had nothing to do with Jessica. Something this man said triggered Michael to show him a photo of Jessica. He instantly recognized her as a woman he'd met and encountered multiple times at a house in Florence. While dealing with a dope dealer, he knew only as John Deere. You'll recall that the screen name Travis was using to communicate with Jessica was John Deere. We recently interviewed a woman who was a friend of Jessica's that she'd spent a lot of time with prior to entering the detox facility. Her name is Mary, and we asked Mary if she knew Jessica's plug without calling him by name. We anticipated she'd tell us about Travis, but Mary named a different man as Jessica's main source for drugs. Here's Mary. He was the main one that would bring it to her. He had brought it to my house several times to her. A couple of times he had gotten me and her to ride to Florence to meet his his big dude. Well, not necessarily to meet his big dude, but to pick up with his big dude. And coming by, you know. So you actually met the guy in Florence? Yeah. Yeah, I rode up there with her three or four times with him and her. She had come out to my head. She was at my house, and uh, he had called or messaged one and asked her if she wanted to ride with her up to Florence. And she said, oh, well, I'm at my girl Mary's house. She's going to be with me, and he was fine with it. He didn't care. And um, now when we got there, I didn't get out of the car. Jess got out of the car. I stayed in the car. I saw the guy. He would, you know, come out on his porch and, you know, I've waved to him. But as far as meeting him face-to-face, meeting him, I never really met him face-to-face. I wasn't interested in meeting him face-to-face. Do you know his name? Mary told us she did not know his name. However, she was able to ID him for us. Michael had sent her photos of two different men in an effort to identify the local dealer that had brought drugs to Jessica before, a man that went by the nickname TJ. One of the photos Michael sent was of Travis Jackson, and Mary told us that she was confident the man she saw at the house on her trips to Florence with Jessica was Travis Jackson. We've all spent a good bit of time trying to determine the relationships between the group Jessica was with after she left Detox. Gilbert Shaw, Alicia Motes, Derek Motes, Eric Edwards and family, Shane Reynolds, and also Travis Jackson and Rodney. We know that Gilbert Shaw knew Shane Reynolds, Alicia Motes, Derek Motes, Eric Edwards, Rodney, and strangely enough, Gilbert told Michael that Eric took him to meet Raymond. I use the word strangely because not many 32-year-old men take their new work friend home to meet their daddy. One other side note here. In his interview with Michael, Gilbert said that after Jessica disappeared, Shane and Eric stopped taking his calls and stopped coming around his camper. This statement was quite easy to disprove. 
A simple search of Shane Reynolds' Facebook messages revealed that he was at Gilbert's camper on January 4th, 6th, and 7th, and on February 22nd and 28th. And I bet he was there many other days, too. You have to wonder, why would Gilbert lie about that? We know that Rodney knew Gilbert and Eric because they all worked together. Travis Jackson has admitted that he knows Rodney. We also know that Alicia and Rodney knew each other. A few months after Jessica's disappearance, Alicia posted a photo of herself on Facebook. The same day, Rodney commented on her photo. He said, beautiful, with a smiley face emoji. The next day, Alicia replied to Rodney's comment, telling him to call her and providing her phone number. We know Eric Edwards knew everyone in the group, with the possible exceptions of Jessica and Travis Jackson. We are unsure if Eric and Jessica knew each other prior to that night, but they had many mutual friends, so it's a definite possibility that they did. It is also unclear if Eric knew Travis, but they too have many friends in common. Shane Reynolds knew everyone in the group, with the possible exceptions of Jessica and Travis. However, Shane and Jessica were friends on Facebook. Most of us are friends on Facebook with people we don't really know, though, so we are unsure if the two of them had a personal relationship or not. Derek Motes knew everyone with the possible exceptions of Rodney and Travis. Alicia knew everyone in the group, with the possible exception of Travis. But they have so many friends in common, I think it's unlikely they didn't know each other. All this brings us to another question we don't think has ever really been considered in this case. We'd always heard that Jessica and Alicia were childhood friends. It is true that they were, but according to those close to Jessica, none of them would have ever expected Jessica to end up with Alicia on that night or any other. So why did Jessica choose Alicia Motes to reach out to as soon as she checked out of the detox facility? Here's what Jessica's mom, Lynn, told us. Yes, as far as, um, you know, her going to Alicia's from detox, you know, that's just, uh, it was shocking to me because back when Jessica did work at Walmart, um, she got a Alicia a job up there and Eventually, I think Alicia was fired for stealing, and they had a falling out about that because, you know, it looked bad on Jessica's reputation. Long story short, I didn't even know they were in touch with each other again, honestly, after that. So, yeah, I was absolutely just floored. Like, you know, why? Of her, of all people, and why didn't she call me? You know, she's called it every other time she's left a detox or a rehab, you know, and just this one time she didn't, just this one time, and that's all it took. Jessica's dad, Keith, expressed very similar sentiments to us. It's always puzzled me. You know, she could use the phone. She could use the landline phone. She wasn't allowed to use her cell phone. And I thought maybe she got a hold of Alicia or something. I don't know that for sure. But, I mean, it's just odd to me that Jessica would just pick Alicia to get in contact with, to go hang out with. That's always been bothersome to me. I mean, 
Jessica had friends in a lot of places. She could have went to other places, other friends. Why Alicia and Derek? I never got that. Because Alicia, Alicia was very jealous of Jessica. They grew up together and all that stuff, and but Alicia was very jealous of Jessica. She had issues with her. And she is one cold devil. I'm telling you. We know that before entering detox, Jessica was spending a lot of time with her friend Mary. Here's what Mary had to say on this subject. I didn't even know that Jeff knew Alicia Mose. I didn't know that until after she had come up missing and it come out that she knew Alicia. We noticed that Alicia and Jessica weren't friends on Facebook until that night, and neither of their Facebook accounts were new. Jessica's account was created in April 2017. Alicia's was created in 2010. Jessica had a total of three Facebook accounts, and she wasn't friends with Alicia on any of them. While it is surprising to many that Alicia would be the first person Jessica would contact when she got out of detox, we've discovered that much of Jessica's behavior in the months and especially the days prior to her entering detox has been described as out of the ordinary. We interviewed the woman who drove Jessica to Journey Detox on December 28, 2017. We aren't going to use her voice or her real name, we will refer to her as Jane. Jane had known Jessica for approximately three years. Jane is older and uninvolved in the lifestyle Jessica was living. She tried to help Jessica whenever she could. She often gave her rides, and she sometimes allowed Jessica to borrow her vehicle. Jane described Jessica calling her that day to ask her for a ride to the detox facility. She had been encouraging Jessica to take the step for quite some time, but she felt the call from her that day was sudden. She said that when Jessica called to ask for the ride, Jessica was in Phil Campbell and she was in Haleyville. Jane described Jessica calling her repeatedly to ask where Jane was and how long it would be before she arrived to pick her up. She said Jessica's rush to leave and her repeated calls was not like Jessica. And Jane became afraid to go to the house where Jessica was because she felt her behavior was an indication that something just wasn't right. Because of her discomfort at the situation, Jane instructed Jessica to start walking away from the home in the direction of a nearby store. However, Jane arrived in time to see which home Jessica left from. She parked in a road nearby and waited for Jessica to walk to her car. She also drove to pick up Jessica's clothes from another home. While Jessica never told her why, during their drive to Journey, Jane said that Jessica seemed like she was scared. Jane didn't know who lived at either of the homes she went to that night, but we were able to identify both locations. She picked Jessica up from a home where a woman named Jerrica Jaton lived. She picked up Jessica's clothing from Mary. Between Michael and Jeff, 
numerous former employees of Journey Detox have been interviewed. The information obtained in these interviews isn't completely consistent, but it's been four and a half years since Jessica was there and memories fade. Here's what we do know. Jessica's phone was supposed to be locked up and she should not have been allowed access to it during her stay there. Law enforcement did obtain Jessica's phone records beginning on December 28, 2017, and they do not indicate that Jessica spoke to anyone via traditional phone calls on her cell phone. The warrant for Jessica's Facebook accounts only went back to January 1, 2018. Those records also did not show any indication that Jessica was using Facebook to communicate while in the facility. Patients at the detox are generally not allowed to use the facility landline either, but there are exceptions to that. Michael was told that if a patient is trying to make arrangements to enter rehab, they would often be allowed to call family to help facilitate that. And often, if a patient was struggling and showing signs of wanting to leave the facility early, they would be allowed to call their family. Michael was told that there was a strict policy that any calls made had to be made in the presence of detox staff. We do know that Jessica made regular calls from the facility to her mom, Jane, and to her dad. While many of the details of Jessica's stay at Journey were fuzzy to one former employee, there was one thing she remembered very clearly. There was one subject that Jessica talked to her about regularly. A close friend of Jessica's had been murdered, and Jessica told her she knew who did it. She described Jessica as very scared, and she believed that's why Jessica checked herself into the detox facility. This wasn't the first that we'd heard about a friend of Jessica's being murdered. In fact, it was a common topic of almost every interview we did. Here is Jessica's sister, Shana. It was just a lot of bad stuff that in that one year that just all packed together. I mean, she had a friend get murdered or whatever they want to call it. And it was just a lot. And I don't think that helped that downward spiral. Then she went to detox at the end of 2017. So uh, his name's Jeremy, Jeremy Abbott. The only thing she ever said to me is that they were really close and that she, what happened to him scared her and that she really wouldn't say much to me about it. I know she talked to my parents about it. She told them a whole bunch of stuff because she was scared. And But that was during that time frame where I had kind of cut my contact with her. Jessica's dad, Keith, also mentioned it. Finally, something happened in Haleville that caused her to maybe get want to get clean and involved a very close friend of hers that was found hanging from a tree in Haleville. In past episodes, we have pointed to Jessica's conversation with a man named Marcos Pagan as evidence that Jessica was still alive and well until at least 7.37 a.m. on January 3rd But until now, we haven't revealed the details of those communications. 
Jessica and Marcos had been in a relationship at one point, but it had ended. On the night of January 2nd, Marcos's mother had sent Jessica a message via messenger. It was a photo with a positive quote on it. In the early morning hours of the 3rd, Jessica replied to her. In the conversation with Marcos's mom, Jessica told her that Marcos was back on drugs and some other things many of us wouldn't appreciate someone telling our mothers. His mother contacted Marcos to relay the things that Jessica told her, and at 6.58 a.m., Marcos messaged Jessica to confront her about it. The first message from Marcos read, You need to keep my name out of your mouth, Jessica, and quit telling my mom a stupid shit for real. It's getting old. You're mad because I won't be at your beck and call, so you're just going to make my family worry about me. Grow the fuck up and stop the bullshit. You don't know nothing about me. You haven't seen me, nor have you been around me. Jessica replied to Marcos at 6.59 a.m., at first trying to deny she had talked about him to his mother. She said, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I've been at detox and going to rehab Friday, actually, and me and you need to sit down and talk about Jeremy. At 7.01 a.m., Marcos replied and said, No, we don't, Jessica. I didn't have nothing to do with Jeremy's death. Sounds like you need to have a sit-down with his family. Jessica immediately fired off three responses to him. She said, I didn't say you did, but you're the only one I trust. I need a motherfucker to talk to. Don't you understand that? At 7.03 a.m., Marcos replied, And quit bullshitting, Jessica. Mom told me you're talking shit, and I can't help you, Jessica. You may trust me, but I don't trust you, and you will never have the chance to sit down and speak face-to-face with me. Ten minutes passed without Jessica responding to this message. She didn't message anyone during this time period. At 7.13 a.m., Marcos sent Jessica another message. I will not give you a chance to betray me again, Jessica. You're a pathological liar, and you have no morals in life, no respect for yourself or others. I've given you too many chances already, and I'm not about to give you any more. Jessica finally responded to Marcos at 7.14 a.m. She said, Mary told me who fucking done it. What do I do? Call unknown? Or what the fuck? Marcos immediately replied to her with, Do what you want, Jessica. I really don't care. Jessica didn't respond to Marcos. And despite the things he'd said to her about being done with her, I guess he truly wasn't because 19 minutes later, he sent her another message that read, Are you saying you didn't speak with my mom at 4 a.m. talking shit? Jessica immediately sent Marcos screenshots of her conversation with his mother that morning. The screenshots revealed the time on Jessica's phone when they were taken, 7.33 a.m., the same time that she sent the screenshots to him. A minute later, at 7.34 a.m., Jessica responded, I have nothing more to say to you. You're like the rest, an ugly soul who don't know his own worth. What a shame. You're amazing, and you don't even realize it. 
At 7.37 a.m., Marcos angrily responded to Jessica. You told me you didn't know what I was talking about. I'm not with Rebecca. Jessica, keep my name out of your mouth and quit telling my mom shit you know nothing about. I tell her everything I do. I don't need some lying little tramp to tell her something that's not even true and make her worry even more than she does. Jessica immediately replied, and it was the last message that she ever sent to Marcos Pagan. Okay, so get out of my inbox, you mundane, soul-sucking incubus of a monster. There are several things about this conversation that have us convinced that it could have been no one other than Jessica communicating with Marcos that morning. She used some of the same words and phrases with him that she used when she argued with others that day. Despite her angry words, the things she said to him also revealed that she had genuinely cared for him and that she trusted him. But the most convincing piece of the conversation is what she had to say about Jeremy Abbott. Did Mary tell Jessica something about Jeremy, as Jessica claimed in her message to Marcos? We asked Mary about that. Another thing that we talked about before that, if you're comfortable with it, get you to talk about that again. I I read you one of the messages that Jessica sent to Marcos. Yeah, about um, ask Mary she knows something about it. Yeah, she said, Mary told me who fucking done it. What do I do? Call unknown or what the fuck? Yeah. She's talking about Jeremy. Yep. That goes back to a conversation that me and Jessica had had. Join us next time as we further explore what happened to Jeremy Abbott, just what Jessica did know about Jeremy's death, and as we continue to investigate and push for justice for Jessica. If you have any information to help solve the disappearance of Jessica Hamby, please email me at secretstruecrime.com at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have it filled with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we will be adding additional content about Jessica. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot, and in this case, also Jeff Means with Sound Mind Investigations. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, 
you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. We are active on social media and will often share photos of Jessica. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com. From the late 1960s to the early 1990s, the United States saw an unprecedented surge in serial killing rooted not just in the dynamic changes of the post-war period, but in the development of the human psyche going back many millennia to our ancient past. Wonder why serial killers exist, why they emerge, and why they exploded in the post-war United States? Check out The Golden Age of Murder, a panoramic look at serial killing focusing on the United States in the post-war period with your hosts, Toby and Simeon.